Well, hey, it's good to gather with you this morning. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. And uh, man, it's always just encouraging to see your faces every week. Uh, whether this is the first time I've seen you or I've seen you every week, uh, it's just good to gather together uh, as God's people. And maybe this is the first time you've ever been to a church gathering. And we just want to say to you, man, we're, we're glad that you're here this morning. Uh, thankful that you came for whatever reason that might be. Maybe somebody invited you or you were just curious to come uh, check out uh, the church. And so we're grateful that you're here. So we want this to be a welcoming community, no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, whether you know and follow Jesus uh, and have been for a long time, you're uh, maybe new to following Jesus, or you're just checking all this out. We're just glad to be together this morning. Uh, but before we begin, let me just pray for us in our time uh, in God's Word. Father, we're uh, just so uh, blessed to be able to be here this morning. We're blessed to be able to have a space to meet in. Uh, to have the means to do that, that we live in a place that allows us to meet in a public school uh, to preach your word. And so, Lord, we, we don't want to uh, overlook that. We don't want to see that as being insignificant, but a blessing from you, because many of our brothers and sisters in the world this morning uh, are not able to do that. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for that. And Lord, I pray now as we sit under your word that you would help us to be attentive, uh, Lord, in our minds and our hearts, that your spirit would take your preached word and it would sink deep into us and affect change in our life as we sit here today. Uh, Lord, I pray you'd bring conviction uh, to our lives where that needs to take place today, that, that your spirit would speak so directly to people this morning uh, that it would be clearly only a work of your spirit. And so, Lord, we want you to be honored by that. We ask that you would change our lives, that you would change this community uh, for your glory and for our good. And so we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy again this morning, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12. If you need a Bible, if you just raise your hand, we'll have a few guys bring a Bible around to you. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us this morning. Uh, and if you don't actually own a Bible, we'd love to give that to you as a gift. So just keep your hand up until they find you uh, so that you can have a copy of God's Word in your hands this morning. We're in Deuteronomy 12 this morning. This is our second to last sermon in Deuteronomy, and it's our second to last sermon in this whole Torah series that we've been in for some time now looking at the first five books of the Bible, really seeing God's plan of redemption, his faithfulness to his plans and his people play out through the beginning of the scriptures, uh, linking that all the way to Jesus. So I hope it's been encouraging to you and challenging to you as well. It has been for me. When I was a sophomore in high school, uh, I went on a, a day ski trip with uh, my church youth group. And we went, uh, I can't remember where we went, but we went skiing just for the day. And uh, it was a nice day. It was a sunny day. Uh, it was, you know, it's East Coast skiing, so it was fake snow. It was like 40 degrees outside, uh, but we still had a good time skiing. And so I had a lot of fun. I love going skiing. Uh, but what I didn't realize in the midst of this, uh, while I was skiing, was that while I was out there, the brightness of the sun reflecting off the whiteness of the snow was literally burning my face. It was burning my face, and I was taking some medicine at the time that made me extra sensitive to UV rays, and I knew that, but it was winter. I mean, you don't put sunscreen on in the winter. You do that when you go to the beach, not when you're snow skiing. And so what I didn't realize until I got home was that I had a sunburn, and it wasn't a minor sunburn. It was a massive sunburn. I mean, my face was red, like like really, really, really red, like embarrassingly red. So red that when I walked down the hall at my high school, people would turn and look like, what happened to that guy? I remember even specifically one guy that was a stranger, I was out, not at school, out in, the pub, in public, asked me what happened to my face because it was so <laughs> red. 
I mean, I, I, I was reaping the physical and social effects of the subtlety of sunburn. I mean, we don't realize when we're in the sun that we're getting burned in that moment most of the time. The warning signs were there. The sun was up. The snow was white. It was reflecting off of it. It was happening the whole time. I was out having a good time, but I didn't realize it until it was too late. As we jump into the text that we're going to be in this morning, we see that Moses warns Israel about another subtle danger that lies ahead, a subtle danger, something that if they're not aware of and they don't take precautions against, it will be too late. What Moses warns them against is the subtlety of idolatry. Now, idolatry is a way, a fancy way of saying the worship of anyone or anything that is not God. Now, this is God's word, not just to the people of Israel as they get ready to go into the promised land. It's God's word to you and to me this morning, whether you know and follow Christ or you don't yet know Christ. We all must be aware of the subtlety of idolatry. So with that, let's go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and see what Moses preaches to the people of Israel and to us this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 12, we're just going to look at the last four verses of this chapter, starting in verse 29 through the end of chapter 12. This is what Moses says to us this morning. <clears throat> when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they've been destroyed before you. And that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. In these four short verses, we see what might be some of the most important commands for Israel that, that Moses gives to them in the midst of him leading these people. Some of the most important commands. And the reason there's some of the most important commands in these four short verses is because in these verses, Moses connects what he's saying here back to what he said at the very beginning, the very first two commandments he gave to God's people. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses is meeting with God, and God is giving him commands, saying, this is what I want you to do. This is how you should live under my lordship as God and king, if you're going to be my people. And he begins by saying this to Moses, which in turn Moses tells the people. In Exodus chapter 20, God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Since the beginning, God has instructed his people on who they are to worship and how they are to worship. He alone is worthy because of who he is and what he has done because he is the God of all creation. Now, they're about to go into this land. Moses has been preaching all these sermons to the people, giving them instruction, direction of what it looks like to live under the lordship of God. They're about to go into this land where there are a whole lot of people who worship a whole lot of false gods. And God has very specifically instructed 
his people through Moses to do certain things once they, once they get into the land related to these false gods. At the beginning of chapter 12, he tells them to tear down all of these false altars, chop down the carved images of their so-called gods and destroy the name of those gods out of the place. He doesn't even want them to be named in that place because he alone is the one to be worshipped. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 4, he says very specifically, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. He doesn't even want them to worship him in the same way that these people worship these false gods. In these four short verses, Moses gives two connected commands. Let's read them again. Verses 29 and 30, 29 and 30, he says this, Again, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, and he says this, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they've been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same. As he's been doing throughout Deuteronomy, Moses says, when you go into the land that God is giving you, I want you to do, make sure that you do, or in this case, do not do two things. Do not be ensnared to follow after them, to follow after them in their ways and in their worship, and do not inquire about their gods. Now, at face value, this seems pretty straightforward. Don't worship the gods of the land. Okay, Moses, we've got it. You've been telling us that since the beginning. We, we, we've got it down now. But Israel needs to pay attention to the language that Moses is using. You and I need to pay attention to the language that Moses is using. Notice what he says here towards the very beginning. In verse 30, he says, be not ensnared. Be not ensnared. To be ensnared is to be caught in a trap. To be caught in a trap. See, the thing about traps is that you don't know you're in one until it's too late and it's clamped down on you. If I set a trap for a mouse in my house or some vermin in my yard who's tearing up my yard or getting into my trash, I don't want it to see the trap. I just want it to get caught. This is why Moses says at the beginning of verse 30, take care, be careful, be on guard, be on watch, don't get caught in the trap. And what is the trap? The trap is the worshiping of false gods in this land. It's the subtlety of idolatry, the subtlety of idolatry. Like we saw last week, Moses is not concerned with mere outward obedience that's disconnected from the heart. It's out of the heart that everything flows in our life. Out of the heart is the motivational structures of our life. What we worship comes from our heart. What we do comes from our heart. What we like and dislike, all those things, our obedience comes from our heart. These four verses at the end of Deuteronomy 12 are a warning against the subtlety of idolatry because the subtlety of idolatry begins in the heart. It begins in the heart. Moses knows that the people, when they go into the land, if they're not paying attention, if they're not aware, if they are not on guard and vigilant, they could be easily drawn away from the worship of the one true God. They could become easily ensnared in false worship, in idolatry. So this leads to the second interconnected command. Moses says, don't go in and inquire about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? Now, isn't Moses overreacting a little bit? I mean, maybe this is just, a, just an innocent question. It could just be a, an interesting cultural study, right? I mean, curiosity to learn about different cultures and different religious practices. The people may say, look, I'm just curious, you know, for educational purposes, how did these people serve and worship their gods? 
And at face value, that might be the case. It might be an innocent question, but that's not what Moses is warning about. If we look more closely at the question, he says, how do these nations serve their gods? We ask that, but then Moses adds that I also may do the same. There's intention there to worship these false gods and follow in the way that the people worship. This is not about cultural inquiry. It's not a mere study of humanities. This is about worship. It's about the subtlety of idolatry. It may begin innocent enough, asking these innocent questions, but quickly turn into outright worship of false gods. Perhaps it begins with being enamored or inquisitive. Everything's new to them. This is a new culture, a new surroundings. And the reality is for them, and we have to be honest about this for our own hearts, our own lives, is that because God is faithful, because God is consistent, that's become mundane for them. Because he's faithful, because he's consistent, that God has become mundane for them. It's the same thing, in and out. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what they do is they set him aside. As they go into this land, things are new and exciting and exhilarating. And the same old, same old, even though they know that's what leads to life, gets set aside for what is new and fresh, but what ultimately leads to death. See, what's worse is is that some of the ways that these people worship their false gods are things that God says he hates. Verse 31 says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. This is strong language. Every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. Everything. And then he gives an example of their profane worship. He says they even sacrifice their sons or daughters for these false gods. God says he hates that. He hates it then and he hates it now. Moses reminds the people again to listen to everything that he's saying. He says, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. Be mindful, be aware, take care to do these things. You shall not add to it or take from it. When you go into the land, Israel, be careful, be aware, be on guard. Don't run after the things they do. Don't run after the things they pursue. Don't run after the things that they worship. Now, why is this so important? Why is Moses giving this warning again? That They know the first two commandments. Why is he giving them this warning again? The reason is, is because in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and as he says throughout the book of Deuteronomy, this is a matter of life and death. It's the very reason that the people that are currently in the land are getting expelled and exiled and dispossessed from the land is because of their false worship, because of their profane worship, because they don't worship the one true God. This is God's judgment on them. And so God's telling Israel, look, the same is true for you. If you go after false gods, if you slip into idolatry, then you also will receive judgment. And he tells them that you will be deported. You will experience death just like these people. This is really important. Now you may say, wait a minute. I mean, isn't it every individual's and every culture's prerogative to worship whoever and however they want? I mean, who are we to say that you should or shouldn't worship something? But listen, we are not the ones saying it. It's God who's saying it. And if God is who he says he is and has done what he says he has done, if people worship anyone or anything besides the one true God, then they worship lesser things. If we worship anything besides God, we worship creation and not the creator. And God will not share his glory with another. 
Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. God says there, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 through 24, through Moses, he says this, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This makes sense if we know who God is. See, the God of the scriptures, the God of the Bible, the God of the people of Israel, the God of you and me, is not just one God among many gods. He is not a superior God to a group of inferior inferior gods. He is the only true God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He has existed for all eternity. He created everything. He owns every star and every galaxy. He is holy, he is just, he is loving, loving, he is compassionate, he is gracious, he is merciful to rebels like you and like me. That's the God that he is calling us to worship. That's the God that he says if you stray away from that is only death. Life is found in him and him alone. So Moses' words to them throughout Deuteronomy is take care, be on guard. Don't allow the subtlety of idolatry to sneak up on you. Keep your eyes on the God who made you and the God who who saved you. In him is life. Apart from him is death. He alone is worthy of worship. Now what happens to God's people? What happens to God's people as they go in the land? What happens is they don't listen. They don't take care to not be ensnared. They go into the land. They don't remove all of these false Altar, false, uh, or altars of, to false gods. They don't do what God tells them to do. They don't follow the law as God told them to. They marry people who do not worship their God, and before long, they are ensnared. They are ensnared, drawn away to worship o- other so-called gods. Maybe not outright rejecting their God, but mixing in the worship of other gods with the worship of their God. They slip into the subtlety of idolatry. And the result was, as Moses said, it was death and deportation. God is true to his word. They are removed from the land, exiled because of the subtlety of idolatry, because they didn't take care. Now, the question for us this morning is, how does this relate to us? We are not going over into a land to take it over. We don't sit and like look across the Potomac River and say, we're coming for you, Maryland. We're coming, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dispossess you from the land, and we're setting up a theocracy in the state of Maryland. That's going to be our land. That's not what we're called to do. So what is, how does this relate to us? We typically in America don't make false gods. We don't have carved images or statues that we bow down to. And listen, there's no threat for us that if we don't worship the one true God that we'll be exiled from Fairfax or exiled from Virginia, or exiled from the United States. That, that threat to us is not there for us. So how are we supposed to do this? How do we apply Deuteronomy 12 to our lives? What can we learn from this? In order for us to get to the answer to that question, we need to ask another question first. And here's that question. What is worship? What is worship? Worship is ascribing worth to something. We worship someone or something when we give it our affections, our attention, our adoration to someone or something of great value to us. What this definition means is is that we can worship anything or anyone at any time in any place. It also means that all of life is an opportunity for us to worship. 
We don't just worship when we gather here and sit in a chair in a middle school cafeteria. All of our life is worship because in the midst of all of life, we give adoration to something. We give our affections to something. Our mind and our heart is set on something. And since the beginning, when sin entered into the world and into our hearts, all of humanity has been prone to chase after other things besides the one true God. Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about this. He lays this out for us. And he's not talking about people that are disconnected from you and from me. You can read this and listen that this, he's talking about you prior to you knowing Christ if you know Christ. Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, Paul writes this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. He's talking about humanity. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. See, our heart is where our worship resides. That means all of us are worshipers. All of us are worshipers, whether we know and follow Jesus or we don't. Whether we claim to believe in a God or we don't. All of us are worshipers because we ascribe worth to something. We ascribe value to something. We give glory to something. We give adoration to something. But instead of worshiping the only one that is worthy of worship, we create other things to worship. John Calvin, who is a pastor and theologian in the 16th century, said that the human heart is an idol factory. It's an idol factory out of our heart, this place of worship. We don't even all the time look to other things. We create idols within our hearts to give our worship to anything and everything but God. It's not difficult for us to give worship to something else besides God. It's not difficult for us because that's the root of and the result of sin is misplaced worship. Worshiping something besides the God who is alone worthy of it. We are all worshipers, but because of sin, our worship has been jacked up. It's been jacked up, it's broken. But here's where the good news of the gospel comes in. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come to make us right worshipers of the one true God. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, speaking about Jesus John writes this, and the word, talking about Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from him, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, Jesus comes to reveal God to us. Jesus comes full of grace and truth that in his fullness you and I might receive grace upon grace upon grace. See, Jesus came to pull off the blinders, to open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts and show us the glory of God who alone is worthy of worship. When Jesus opens our eyes, we see that God is worthy of that and we see everything else as what it actually is, just something God has created, not worthy of us giving our worship to. Jesus does that. 
See, Deuteronomy 12 is important for us even now, even now, if we are in Christ, because we are citizens of a new kingdom. We live under God's kingdom and God's rule now if we're in Christ. Now, when I say those words, we are in Christ, what I mean is I'm talking about those of us who have recognized, truly recognized the depth of and depravity of our hearts in our hearts that have led us to rebel against the only true God, who have set ourselves up as being essentially God in our life. This is what we call sin. If we're in Christ, we have to recognize that first, but we also, by faith, believe that the only remedy to the problem of our sin and our rebellion and all of its consequences, which is death and judgment from holy God, the only remedy to that is Jesus Christ. The Jesus who lived a perfect life of worship. Jesus who went to a cross as the perfect sacrifice and substitute for us, dying the death that you and I deserve to die, bearing the wrath of God on his back, his shoulders, so that you don't have to. Jesus who was raised again three days later to give life forever and ever. To be in Christ then means that we are united with Jesus in his life and all that that means for him and for us. It means that we're united with him in his death and everything that it accomplishes. It means we're united with him in his resurrection, that we now have life and victory over sin and death. It means that we've been forgiven and set free from the bondage of sin and death, that we are now made right worshipers of God, that we can worship him alone because we are a new creation We've been given new hearts. See, being in Christ is about having a new citizenship, no longer being of this world, but citizens of God's kingdom and children in God's family. Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death for our sin, and rose again to make us right worshipers of God because through Christ, you and I now have new hearts, which means we're no longer captive to sin. We're captive to God now. We can see him for who he is and what he is worth, the immensity of his value, the infinite and eternal God, and we see him now and we're able to worship him only because of what Christ has done for us. That's the good news and the effect of the gospel in your life. If we are in Christ, we are not of this world. Our home is not here any longer, but we do find ourselves in this world until Jesus returns or calls us home. And the world we find ourselves in has a plethora of idols and gods it worships that come in various forms, shapes, and sizes. But listen, something we need to, to hear this morning that, we, that I don't want us to run the wrong way with this is that God doesn't leave us in this world for us to huddle up and hide until Jesus comes back. We shouldn't create a Christian subculture where we retreat back from the world. No, God has called us, he has left us in this world, not to be of this world, but sent into it so that we can tell other people about the freeing good news of the gospel, so they can be set free, forgiven, and made new through Christ. So the question for us now is not how do we retreat, how do we huddle, how do we distance ourselves from the world? No, the question is how are we as people, not of this world, but sent into it, how are we supposed to be aware of and fight against the subtlety of idolatry? What are we to do now? The warning of Deuteronomy 12 is important because the subtlety of idolatry is still present in the 21st century. It's still present in your life and mine, whether you know Christ or don't. Because Christ has changed your heart doesn't mean that you're not prone to still follow and wander and give worship to something else. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. John, the Apostle John, at the end of his letter uh, that we call 1 John, the last verse of that letter, he says to people there, those that he's writing to and to us as well, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's writing this to people that know Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, Paul says there, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We still need to be aware, even if we know Christ, even if we have new hearts, that we still have a temptation to pursue idols. And so, Sojourn, I want us to heed Moses' words. I want us to take care so that we are not ensnared in the ways of the world to worship the things the world worships. I said at the beginning that idolatry is the worship of anyone or anything that is not God. And let's flesh that out a bit more so that we can really understand what idolatry is. Here's a few additional definitions of idolatry. An idol is anything that deflects our devotion to Jesus. It's anything that deflects our devotion to Jesus. Maybe it doesn't outright steal it, but it just deflects it for a bit. It causes to be scattered in our devotion, and we don't just give it to Christ alone, but we give it to other things as well. If that, whatever that thing is, is an idol. Another pastor says that an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give is an idol. Moses tells God's people to take care, to not be ensnared to the idols of the land in which they're going. And Sojourn, I want to call us to be on guard against the subtlety of idolatry in our lives. And I want us to do three things to be able to fight against that. I want us to call us to do three things. Take care, be captivated, and journey together. Take care, be captivated, and journey together. The first thing is to take care. Moses tells Israel to take care and not become ensnared. We need to be aware. We need to be on guard. We need to be mindful of the idols of our culture as we live in this world and the idols that we're also prone to wander to. But sometimes that's easier said than done. See, the world around us is not making carved images or bowing down to statues. Our idols today are not as overt as that, but they are still there. If you don't believe that, then you're already slipping into the subtlety of idolatry. But see, most of us do not consciously decide to worship something else, to make something an idol. We don't say, you know what, I think I'm going to make this a false god in my life. But we don't wake up one morning and say, no, I, I want this to be a functional savior in my life instead of the one true God. It happens subtly. But that's what we need to realize. That's where we need to take action. Listen, haphazard hearts, unaware hearts are easily drawn to the siren call of false gods who make empty promises. Our heart may have good intentions, but if it's haphazard, if it's unaware, then we are going to hear the siren call of a false god and be drawn off course to go worship that only to be dashed on the rocks in front of it. See, the problem is, is that we are not aware when we don't even recognize that something might be holding the place of God in our life. Listen to this quote from Tim Keller. I think this speaks very clearly to us when it comes to where we live and the culture we live in right now, the land that we find ourselves in. He says this, when we are completely immersed in a society of people who consider a particular idolatrous attachment normal, 
it becomes almost impossible to discern it for what it is. When we live in a culture that calls something that's idolatrous normal, it's hard for us to discern what it really is. And Sojourn, my fear for our church is that there are things in our culture right now that are functional saviors in idols that are so normal to us that we don't even realize that they're drawing our worship away from God. Because we look around and everybody's doing it. It seems normal to us, even within the church. When I think about the culture we live in here in Northern Virginia, there are several idols that come to mind. We could spend all afternoon talking about this, but I just want to focus on one as an example. One of the biggest idols in the land that we find ourselves in is money. And here's a good tip to the seriousness of this. No one ever thinks that they're greedy or that greed could be a problem for them. We can list off a lot of things we struggle with, but most of us don't put greed at the top of that list, if anywhere on that list at all. But if we're going to heed Moses' words, then we should stop We should take care. We should seek to assess our hearts and figure out whether or not we might be prone to worship money or are already captive to the love of it. See, when we talk about greed, greed is not just the love of money. It's not just the trust in money. It can also be the excessive anxiety about money. Greed can encapsulate all of that. That can be the case for me. I can find my hope. I can find my security in my finances, that my accounts are where I think they need to be, where I want them to be, where I need them to be. Money is an idol of our culture, but it's not unique to this area. It's not unique to this time period. It's not unique to this country. It's been an issue for a long, long time. Jesus speaks often about the idolatry of money and says very clearly to you and to me, you cannot serve both God and money. Your worship cannot be deflected. It cannot be divided. If you worship money, then you don't worship the one true God. See, if we are not aware, then we can quickly become ensnared. Listen, we can assess idols, we can assess functional saviors and false gods in our life by thinking about what we run to, what we lean into to mitigate fears in our life. If I fear instability, if I fear uh, that I don't have the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want, then I might seek to hoard the resources that God has given to me to build bigger barns. Or I might spend more frivolously to buy more things because I feel I deserve those things. Listen, it's good to be a good steward of the money and resources God has given to you. It's good even to enjoy good things with the resources that God has given to us. But when any good thing becomes an ultimate thing in our life, it has become a false God and a functional Savior. When any good thing becomes an ultimate thing, Any good thing, that can be your kids, it can be your marriage, it can be your desire for a relationship, it can be your job, it can be anything, any good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. You've been taken captive by the subtlety of idolatry. I think the reality for a lot of us, though, is that our tendency toward idolatry in whatever shape or form it happens to take place in our life is really about hedging our bets. If we're honest, we can think, look, I believe in the one true God. I believe in the one true God. But just in case he doesn't come through in the way that I want him to. Just in case he doesn't do what I I think he needs to do in my life right now. What what I need. Just in case he doesn't do that. because Just in case he isn't who he says he is. Then I want to have insurance against that. So I put my hope in some other things. 
by diversifying my portfolio of deities. But listen, hope is not to be diversified. And God is not interested in sharing his glory with anyone or anything else. The reality for some of us this morning is that while we believe and say that Jesus is our Savior and principle, as Tim Keller continues to say, the glittering gods of our age hold the functional trust of our hearts. We may say with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We may say with our mouth that we worship the one true God, but the reality of our lives is that the the glittering gods of this age hold the place of God in our life. See, the question for all of us this morning is not whether or not we have rival gods, it's what are they? We need to take care, we need to be aware. Let me give you a few questions to ask yourself to help you be aware of the potential of idols in your life. What does your heart, soul, and mind drift toward, especially when you're fearful or anxious? What does your heart, soul, and mind drift toward, especially when you're fearful or anxious? What do you tend to move toward to find hope and security, joy and happiness? Is there someone or something in your life right now that you look to in order to mitigate a fear in your life? Maybe it's the fear of loneliness, the fear of how you look or what you have, your status. It can be any fear. Is there someone or something besides God that you run to to mitigate that fear? Remember, taking a good thing, turning it into an ultimate thing is idolatry. And when we, what we need to be aware of is that every counterfeit and false god that our culture promotes and pushes will always disappoint us because only the one true God can satisfy. He alone can give us joy, peace, and life now and forever. Sojourn, we need to take care. The second thing that we can do in the midst of this is be captivated. It's good to recognize the things that we're prone to wander towards, these idols that we are subtly slipping into worship of, that we're surrounded by in our culture as being normal, but how do we overcome those things? We overcome them by being captivated. But first, let me tell you what not to do. Removing idols out of your life does not come by self-will. I don't want you to hear this morning that what you need to go home and do is say, you know what, I need to care less about this and worship God more. I recognize these things that I'm prone to worship besides God, so this week I'm going to care less about that. That's not going to remove those idols out of our life. The only way to remove idols is that they're not just, is understanding they're not just simply removed, they need to be replaced. And in order to be replaced, they must be replaced by something greater. Maybe this morning you know that your worship is not of the one true God who has revealed himself to us through the scriptures and through Christ. If you don't know Christ, let's start there with Christ. Everything and everyone in this world will disappoint you if you are looking to it for your hope, your peace, your security, and your joy because no one and nothing can bear the weight of that request. They may be able to hold it up for a little while, but eventually it will crash down as it crumbles under the weight of your expectations, or you will crash down and crumble when you recognize that even when you have these things, that there's still emptiness. But see, Jesus has come to give life, and not just life. He says he comes to give life abundantly to you. That doesn't mean health. It doesn't mean wealth. It means he gives you a relationship with the God of all eternity, now and forever, because he takes care of your sin and adopts you into his family. Christ alone brings life and peace now and forever. 
the glitter of this world will fade, but Christ's rule and reign will last forever. So if that's you this morning, turn away from pursuing false gods, the false gods of this age, and turn to the one true God who came to live and die that you might be set free. You have to begin there. And when you do know Christ, when you are united with Christ, you overcome idolatry and the temptation toward it by looking to that which is more worthy of your worship, the God who made you and the God who saves you. If you are in Christ, you have a new heart. If you are in Christ, God has made you a right worshiper through him. But as the idols of this world and your old life continue to call to you to worship them, if he doesn't remain at the center of your life, then you will stray. But Colossians 3 reminds us that we, in order to put to death what is earthly in us, what is evil in us, which includes our idolatry, it's not done by self-will. It's done by looking to Christ who is greater. Looking to him who is greater. Looking to Christ means that we first truly know him. It means that we spend time studying his word, which tells us about him. It means that we pray to him, asking to know him more and more. It means we meditate on who he is, what he has done, and what he is doing in our life. It means that we gather together as the church to hear songs sung over us about this God who is worthy of our worship, that we sit under the preaching of God's word to remind us of this God because the rest of the world is preaching something else to you. We need to look to Jesus. That's not some ethereal thing, some philosophical thing to do. These are the ways that we look to Jesus, is by being entrenched in his word and in prayer, in the community, in the family that God's given to us. You and I must set our hearts, our minds, our souls on Christ as our peace and our life. We must be captivated by he who is greater and worthy of all worship to replace that which is lesser. We need to take care. We need to be captivated. And the last thing we need to do is we need to journey together. If Christ has rescued you out of slavery from sin, if he sets you free, he's also placed you in a community, a family that has also been set free. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter's telling us the same thing. We are no longer of this world, but we are sent into it. So we are sojourners and exiles, but yet this world wages war against us. It calls us to worship other things. And so we need each other to help fight this battle. We are sojourners together, not of this world, but in it together. We need each other. We need to help each other when it comes to the subtlety of idolatry because sometimes we don't see it in our life. Because sometimes we're not aware. Because sometimes other things do captivate our hearts more than God. Because sometimes we can become ensnared. God has given us each other to journey together in this world, to point out danger, to remind us of truth, to help stir one another's affections for Jesus. We help each other do this. We pull each other back, not with slaps on the wrist, but with a pleading to one another to look to him who is greater, to the only one who has the words of life. We say to one another, in the midst of struggle, follow me as I follow Christ. We say to one another, in the midst of struggle, Jesus is better. He really, really is better. It's why we gather together. It's why we sing the songs we sing. It's why we listen to God's word. We need each other to keep us from the subtlety of idolatry. So let me ask you two more questions. 
Are you spending time with people that help stir your affections for Christ or only those who stir your affections for the things of this world? And listen, the scary thing about that is you can be spending time with believers who still stir your affections for the things of this world more than Christ. Are you that person stirring the affections of your brothers and sisters for Christ or for the things of this world? Are there people in your life right now who know your functional saviors, who know where you're prone to wander so they can help you out and say, brother, sister, you're being drawn off course. Look to the God who made you and the God who saves you. Together, we are not of this world, but we are sent into it so that others might be set free from the subtlety of idolatry. Listen, because we are God's holy people, we should be different than the world, but that's the crazy thing about all of this, is that as we worship the one true God, as we keep ourselves unstained from the world, we can with winsomeness and respect for other people. All around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, our friends, we can say together what the world offers you is only death dressed up with makeup on. I have something better. No, no, I, I know someone better. Let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you about my king. Do you know him? Do you know him? Sojourn, let's together take care. Let's together be captivated. Let's together rejoice. The God who created us and the God who saves us is worthy of all worship and all praise from all of us. Let that be what this church is about. As we come to the table this morning, we're reminded of a few things. As we come forward to take the bread and take the cup, we are reminded of our tendency toward idolatry because we are reminded that Christ had to die for our idolatry. But as you're reminded that Christ had to die for your idolatry, you're also refreshed in knowing that his death has set you free from that idolatry. Coming to the table helps you be captivated by who God is and what he has done, that he rescued you from death and darkness And because he has done that, he alone is worthy of all our worship and all of our life. Listen, if you're doubting this morning, if you're struggling this morning, if you're leaning towards idolatry, look around you this morning and see the faith of your brothers and sisters who come forward. That as your brothers and sisters come forward, as they take the bread and take the cup, as they sing the songs that we're going to sing, that they are saying to you this morning, Jesus is better. They're saying to you this morning that God's grace is sufficient for you. Let's worship him together. Look at the faith of your brothers and sisters. And if you're struggling this morning, repent of the idolatry in your life and believe once again. Place your faith in Jesus once again, believing that he is better. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you this morning not to come forward to take communion. Because as we come forward, like I just said, what we're declaring is, is that we are desperate for Jesus. That he alone is worthy of our worship. That we're confessing that it's only by Christ that we can be set free from false worship. And so if you haven't yet trusted in Christ, if you haven't turned away from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus, we want to ask you not to come forward to take communion this morning, but to take Jesus this morning. Ask God to save you today. Confess your false worship and ask God to forgive you and save you because of what Christ has done. And then next week, and we can welcome you as a new brother and sister in Christ to come to the table for the first time. If you have questions about what it means to know and follow Jesus, please come talk to me or any of our other leaders. It's why we're here. We want you to understand the gloriousness of our God, that you might know him now and know him forever. Those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready to receive the elements and tear off a piece of bread 
take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. Let's pray. Father, we are blown away that you, God, the God who created all things, the God who's existed from all eternity, the God who owns every star and every galaxy, does not stay distant from us, though you are transcendent and high and lifted up, but you come to us. You're a God who dwells among us. When you come in and through your son, Jesus, who has revealed your glory to us, has pulled the blinders off of our eyes, has given us new hearts, ears and eyes to hear and see that you are worthy of all worship. So Father, I pray that you would help us as a family of brothers and sisters, as a local church here in this area, in the land that we find ourselves in, to realize that we are not of this world, but we, while we remain in it, to not be unaware of the subtlety of idolatry. Father, help us to go out of this place to recognize it and that our hearts and our minds would be set on you who is greater and that everything in this, else in this world would pale in comparison, that we would consider it rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus. And Lord, that would not just stop with us, that it would go out from us, that we would be so compelled because you have radically changed our hearts to tell other people that what you're worshiping is empty. It only leads to death. Let me tell you about the God who leads to life, who is our life, who is our peace, who is our joy. Let me tell you about him. Father, would you bring a revival and awakening to this city, to this area, that more people would not worship other false gods, whatever form, shape they take, but would worship you alone. Allow us, God, to be the messengers that bring that good news. What a privilege and joy it is. And Lord, now as we continue to come forward to take communion and sing songs together, I pray that we would respond in worship to you this morning. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you love us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.